Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast by the Yeider Institute at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Jonathan Hackenbroek. He joins us from Berlin, where he is a policy fellow for economic statecraft at the European Council on Foreign Relations and head of the Council's task force for strengthening Europe against economic coercion. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today on Trade Matters. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So I'd like to start by defining economic coercion, what we're talking about in the heart of this this episode today. You've written about this quite a lot for the European Council on Foreign Relations, um, along with your co-authors, Pavel Zerka and Philip Medinik. And you've written that economic coercion is, quote, when third countries use economic means in pursuit of a geopolitical goal, unquote. What else would you say in defining or explaining what economic coercion is and why it may be happening more frequently now? Right, and, and that's of course a, an incredibly important um, uh, question because if we, if we talk about responses to economic coercion, the question always immediately is, what is it that we're talking about? What do we wanna to respond to? When do we trigger, for example, countermeasures or, 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 or similar? So, um, and, and, and it is tricky to define, um, to, to define it because it, um, as you said, um, uh, it's mainly defined by the use of an economic link or mean economic pressure to get a, 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 you know, a government of a different state to act in a certain way or not act in a certain way. Um, and um, uh, what we're seeing is that we've, we've entered this new great power competition that, is, um, that sometimes uh, you know, people refer to as, as, um, uh, as, as the new Cold War. But in fact, it's very different than the old Cold War. And even after what's now happened here in, in Europe and in, in Ukraine, um, uh, uh, we're not looking at a world completely divided into separate blocks. We may get there eventually, but, but that's not what, where we are at the moment, still not. Um, uh, and, uh, but, but rather at a, at a world where this geopolitical competition, uh, mainly between, uh, you know, some, sometimes framed as the competition between uh, the US and China, um, uh, uh, now maybe more, more and more as the West and with and, and, and democracies um, uh, against autocratic uh, regimes um, uh, is taking place in a, in a situation of a fairly close economic interdependence and, and high levels of in economic integration in which um, using, uh, you know, you can use these economic links to, to put pressure on, on, on the other side or on, on, a, on a third country. Um, uh, but also where this becomes the least bad op option uh, and your number one foreign policy tool, uh, because all other options like outright war are difficult for one reason, because there's nuclear weapons and, 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 and we don't want to get into nuclear war, certainly, uh, but, but, um, but also because it, it would come at which, with such great economic damage as well, because, because as I said, we're, we're integrated, uh, highly integrated economies still. Okay, so maybe we could just walk through one example of an instance of economic coercion and how that plays out. I know the example with respect to China's pressure on the country of Lithuania is one that has gotten some attention. So could you just walk through briefly what's happened there for our listeners? Right, so uh, what, what originally happened was, was a, you know, a political, political tensions. Um, uh, uh, Lithuania pulled out of the 17 plus one uh, format, which was a format of Eastern and Central European uh, nations with China, uh, you know, to to enhance cooperation with China, and 
um, uh, and, and just gradually uh, toughened its position towards China all the way until accepting the establishment of a, uh, a Taiwan representative office in, in Vilnius, the, the Lithuania capital, which is significant because China views this as a, as a breach of the one China principle and, and as a recognition or as partial recognition of, of uh, Taiwan as a country, as an independent country. Um, uh, and uh, what then happened was you saw um, increasing economic uh, fallout uh, that went all the way to a full trade embargo of Lithuanian trade with China, but, but Chinese and, and you know, the country Lithuania fell off the customs clearance system, clearance system of, uh, of China. So that just makes it impossible to import Lithuanian goods into China um, altogether. And, um, but China didn't just stop there. It went further and it, um, uh, and it pressured German, Swedish, Dutch, other companies reportedly, and <laughs> this is all based on reports, emails that companies have gotten, and, and, but, but there's mostly no, even no paper trail whatsoever, um, uh, pressured these companies to stop trading with Lithuania. So, so used unrelated third country uh, companies as weapons against Lithuania to shield, to, to cut Lithuania off international trade and European trade, uh, all as a punishment uh, for a political choice, not because China was, was concerned about you know, um, uh, trade or economic practices uh, in, in, uh, in Lithuania, but, 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 uh, but out of national security concerns, if you will. So quite remarkable to go after companies in third countries in this case, um, that kind of extends the coercion quite far beyond just the country that um, is the object of the problematic behavior, at least in the eyes of China in this case. So it seems to be a, a sign of integration resulting in some vulnerabilities um, that can be exploited by these third countries. So in defining so, economic coercion, um, you have listed four features of what successful economic coercion against the European Union can look like. Um, which are trade as a weapon, uh, the swiftness with which this coercion can take place, especially as measured against the slowness generally of, of a response to it because of the EU's need to act you know, in concert and the time that it takes to respond to these measures. Uh, the use of gray zone tools that can be kind of hard to pin down as well as the power of division. So those four features of successful economic coercion that you've pointed out. And I wanna start with the last one, the power of division to help our listeners understand the European Union a little bit better. You've noted before that the EU single market is not complete and that quote, smart economic coercion is what successfully divides the European Union, unquote. So again, especially for our non-European listeners, tell us why the single market is not complete and then how economic coercion can divide EU member states. Right, so, so and, and this goes back to the fact that um, uh, in contrast to the U.S. Uh, over here in Europe, uh, you know, we, we, we're dealing with 27 fully, I mean, member states that are um, that are countries, independent countries, if you will, uh, uh, held together in, in the European Union, but not the United States of Europe. Um, and and that means that the um, that we don't have a you know uni fully unified uh, central government in Brussels, just like there is a federal government in in Washington that will take. Uh, decisions on foreign policy. Uh, and uh, uh, in fact, foreign policy is still with the member states. So, you know, as, as we all know, Germany does, uh, conducts its, its foreign policy, France its own foreign policy, and so forth. Of course, they coordinate, coordinate really closely, 
um, uh, uh, but you can still see differences. And um, and on foreign policy matters, which economic coercion, you know, at least the geopolitical, um, uh, at least the geopolitical competition, uh, lots of competencies are with member states, and all twenty-seven have to unanimously agree if they want to take a take a, dis, a consequential decision like imposing sanctions against Russia. Now, Russia's actions were. Um, uh, were so flagrantly aggressive and uh, and and you know and and, and just uh, just put in speech about uh, Nazis and and drug addicts in Ukraine and 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 uh, uh, you know questioning the right for of Ukraine to exist and 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 uh, aiming to eradicate this country from from the world's map basically that fosters great unity in Europe obviously because it's just so outrageous and and such a such a big crisis. I would argue that in, in many other instances, um, when Europeans are attacked economically or, or through other means, but on economic coercion, um, they uh, the third country will not make the mistake of unifying them because it, it suffices that one or two of them uh, oppose tough countermeasures, for instance. And, and so that's that's why, particularly with the EU, I mean, this, this happens with regards to the US as well. Ideally, you, you wanna try to uh, you know, divide Congress, which is already highly polarized, but still you have a highly, highly effective central uh, centralized federal federal government that take, can take decisions, and and that's why it's there's a particular vulnerability that Europe has, um, uh, given it's it's still um, a, a union of twenty seven countries. Okay, so shifting to a couple of other factors there, trade as a weapon and the gray zone tool specifically. So it seems that in the case that you've described already with Lithuania and other cases, a country might use trade policy instruments like a tariff to pressure another country into making certain policy choices. And you've written about another example, the one regarding the Chinese ambassador in Berlin who threatened to impose tariffs on German car exports if Germany banned the Chinese company Huawei from building its 5G network. Um, so this is a case of using tariffs to coerce rather than to protect. So the, the tool is the same on the surface, but the reason it might be utilized is different. In the, this example with Germany that I just mentioned, the coercion seems very overt, um, easy to identify, but are there cases where it might be harder to see or prove the why uh, behind a country's behavior, behind why they might be imposing a tariff? And so really the question is, how can you distinguish between protectionism and coercion when that involves judging another country's motives or intentions with these tools? That's a really good and, and tricky question um, because uh, the nature of, and you know, going back to what I, what I said earlier, um, if we accept that uh, this world is one where economic logics and you know, trade logics um, are not separate anymore, and they've always, to an, ex to ex an extent that was always true, but much more, uh, they're much more intertwined now with geopolitics um, uh, and not separate from geopolitics. And they're actually the prime uh, geopolitical, the, the economics uh, offers the prime uh, geopolitical tools for, for states to pursue their power objectives. Um, then you're in, a, you're in a situation where the logics, where, where, where an action that in, uh, from a trade perspective would, would be protectionist, um, uh, in from a geopolitical per, uh, perspective is actually a, a deterrent or is is actually something that makes things um, uh, you know less grave uh, and and ultimately protects free markets in a way because 
because by taking a countermeasure, um, you uh, you're making sure that that other countries are deterred from doing doing something similar and from infringing upon you know liberal trade and and, uh, and open and rules based trade. Um, so, but the question concretely is very difficult in a concrete case when it's not so overt as, as you're saying. Uh, to give that one example, one more example. Um, uh, uh, when China decided to um, hit about 10% of Australian overall Australian exports in punishment of Canberra's decision to, um, to exclude Huawei of its 5G network building and to, um, uh, and to criticize or actually to call for, a, for an investigation, an independent investigation into the Wuhan uh, pandemic outbreak back in 2020, um, uh, it, it, China used anti-dumping measures. Um, and um, uh, and uh, which you know used trade trade defense tools basically, but they came at a point where where it's uh, it seemed fairly clear that they were meant for coercive purposes, not to protect um, Chinese uh, Chinese um, industries or or you know the Chinese economy from Australia. But still, Australia had more anti-dumping measures in place against China than the than the other way around. And so these things are very tricky. Ultimately, they're political. And um, what you need to do is in the very, in each instance, collect evidence, um, uh, uh, make clear um, uh, uh, why you're, you're, you're sensing that this could not, not just be um, you know, protectionist, but, but actually coercive. And, um, and, uh, and you need a very good understanding of the geopolitical goals of, of, of other countries like China. Okay, that brings us into the European Union's new proposed anti-coercion instrument, a proposed way of responding to these types of situations. This would be an unprecedented tool for the EU, and from what I can tell, discussions about economic coercion in the EU in particular often seem to describe it as a China problem and, and a Russia problem, but this tool would not be aimed, as far as I can understand it, at any one actor on the global stage. So tell us a little bit about the genesis for this tool, what brought about the proposal to create it, and how it would work. Right. So, I mean, very openly, I think it's it was mostly Donald Trump in the beginning that triggered Europeans to think about, um, you know, whether they might not need uh, better defenses. Now, many of them had a longer term strategic view um, uh, of course, and knew that, um, that that China and possibly they were even thinking of Russia, but mostly China um, uh, would become a much bigger problem, and that um, you know, and, and we're hoping that transatlantic relations would always be on, in 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 such a good place as they are now, and or 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 at least um, uh, uh, very close still. Um, but uh, Donald Trump used um, a range of of threats and, and tools from sanctions, punitive tariffs, you know, at one point, um, uh, uh, France and other countries tried, uh, wanted to um, uh, establish a digital service tax and, and, uh, and, and Trump uh, threatened, uh, them, threatened them with, uh, with the imposition of punitive tariffs to, uh, under section 301. Um, uh, and uh, that's where the original thinking came from where you where the EU was sort of waking up to the fact that um, even from your close friend and ally, uh, you may not always expect rules-based behavior on trade, at least under such a such a government like the, like the Trump uh, government, and um, 
and you may need something you may need tools to deal with that situation ideally tools that will de-escalate the situation certainly when it comes to transatlantic relations and um and uh and and, and that's sort of where it started um uh, this idea of a collective defense instrument between your you know where where one where the one member state sovereignty is is violated that the entire eu on the basis of the full weight of the european market can respond with tough countermeasures if needed. Uh, and ideally, of course, this would, the, the very existence of the tool uh, would deter such, such moves in the first place. It comes also from the uh, experience, I, I'll just add that still, um, from the experience that while Trump did slap some uh, tariffs on European products like aluminum and steel exports um, to, toward the US, uh, he stopped short of imposing car tariffs on the German uh, car industries. And, and that was in part from the European view, um, uh, thanks to the EU's very tough reaction, counter reaction, you know, that, that targeted products like Jack Daniels and, and uh, um, Harvey David, Harley, Harley Davidson, um, uh, uh, and, and, and where, where the sense here was that uh, that was being seen in the White House and that not, uh, not necessarily expected that Europe could retaliate um uh in you know reciprocate those measure, measures and 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 that sort of um uh, made it more confident that it could be helpful to have a tool in 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 the back of their hands uh in just in case okay so how would this tool sort of work in practice i know it's still under discussion so not in its final form at the moment but you've written and thought a lot about what it could or should look like so tell us a little bit more about how it would work and who could initiate a case of alleged economic coercion within the EU? Would it have to be a government source or could a private actor uh, bring a case under this tool? Uh, this, it, would, it would not be a private, um, private actor though, though they could um, uh, furnish information and, and that could lead the government or the, the European Commission precisely that, that would trigger it and, and the Director General, Director General uh, for Trade uh, in Brussels would, would do so. Um, how would it work? The, the main the key difference is that you're creating a, an instrument where you can respond very directly. It's an autonomous instrument. So the EU can, can react uh, directly, if you will, unilaterally, but only in response to a unilateral breach of its sovereignty, of you know, the sovereignty of, of, of a member state, where it's really about, as we were saying, uh, changing the behavior of a member state or several member states through um, direct economic pressure um, uh, or indirect economic pressure, but 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 uh, you know in, in a grave way interfere with the sovereign choices of a, of a member state. And in that case, uh, the EU would trigger a procedure to determine whether this is economic coercion. Um, it would seek dialogue with the third country. There are lots of off ramps actually in the proposal. So so you can definitely see. Uh, a great effort and great emphasis to try to um, uh, find ways of using the prospect of, of tough economic countermeasures as a way to trigger dialogue and as, as a way to resolve the issue differently. But if the measures persist, if the threats persist, eventually the EU could then um, enact a counter tariff of, you know, of reciprocal uh, proportional uh, that would impose proportional damage on the other on the third country economy. So let's say Russia or China, um, it could um, uh, impose investment restrictions. Uh, um, uh, could list 
you know, put companies or, or individuals on lists, so those companies or individuals that contribute to the implementation of, uh, of economic coercion, it could, um, uh, it could impose export controls, very similar export control, controls, the export controls that, um, yeah, that we've, as we've seen against Russia and so forth. So a wide menu of, of uh, uh, measures uh, that, that the EU could, uh, could impose, which is also meant to give it, you know, the possibility to flexibly um, react to whatever situation is at hand. Uh, and and what what it actually deems as an effective countermeasure in depending on which country we're talking about depending on what the situation is. Okay, so a, lo a large range of, of countermeasures that could be possible there, going right. <clears throat> well well beyond just tariffs, which we often think of as a the main tool of trade policy. But this goes far, far beyond that in terms of what might be possible to impose. So talk a little bit too, if you would, about the swiftness with which this process could happen under this tool. So going back to your definition of economic coercion, and again, the four factors of successful economic coercion, swiftness is one of them on the part of the country applying the pressure um, as juxtaposed against how it can be slow. It can take time for the European Union or, or other countries to respond to something like that. It takes time to build the case, to build, the, build out the evidence, and then exercise the tool. So how how would this tool be built in such a way that it could be used to respond in a timely fashion to instances of economic coercion? Right, and uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there there would be a procedure, and and uh, you know, as the, to determine whether this is this is coercion, there there will be attempts to solve this by dialogue and so forth. So, so we wouldn't say necessarily, even though in in certain situations under an emergency or urgency pr procedure, uh, the EU could even impose, it could even do that. We wouldn't in, nor in most cases see a countermeasure take taken the next day. Still, though. Even if it takes a week or so, um, uh, that's really swift. If you compare it not just to um, to sanctions making and where you need unanimity and you need a full full um, uh, you know negotiations between also twenty seven member states uh, um, uh, and so forth. In this case, you could move fairly quickly. And depending on which decision making uh, procedure they they choose, because the instrument hasn't been established yet, it's only been proposed. But under the current proposal. Um, it would be uh, it, the commission that could act very fairly fast, where the EU government, if you will, in quotes, the commission in the centralized body in Brussels could, um, could uh, move ahead, go towards imposing a, a, a countermeasure, and, um, and member states could stop it if they disagreed by a qualified majority, which is, a, a, you know, it's, it's a, like something like a supermajority in the, in the EU system. And um, uh, but it may well be that member states disagree and that that that's a little too fast for them and that they would like to actually have to approve them actively by qualified majority. But still, that even even that would still be a fairly fast procedure compared to unanimity or um, uh, or, or, or sanctions making under under CFSP under, under the common foreign security policy in the EU. Okay, so then let's look at the type of outcome that this tool is supposed to generate. So. The very existence of the tool at such time that it becomes approved is supposed to deter behavior from happening in the first instance. But if the tool is utilized and it, the off ramps um, do not work and countermeasures are imposed, the ideal is that that induces the third country to stop the bad behavior, to stop the coercion. 
I want to ask you this, though. You've pointed this out, and many others have, that in the U.S. case, where the U.S. imposed the Section 301 tariffs on China that you mentioned a few minutes ago um, on Chinese goods entering the U.S., uh, those tariffs are still in place, and they have not changed the underlying behavior uh, that they were aimed at targeting, that they targeted. So I want to ask you if there's a risk that any trade measures or other countermeasures that might be imposed under the anti-coercion instrument would not, in fact, change the behavior and, and instead put risk further trade conflicts. I think the short answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is that risk, and, 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 and that's why it's a very important question. Um, uh, as you've, said, you, you, you've mentioned, the, the case of, um, uh, of, of uh, the Trump administration's uh, tariffs against China, which some you know, good parts are still in, in place, but the, the, the behavior hasn't changed still. Um, and it's also something we're seeing with our, our sanctions, our broader sanctions that as we as the West, as the US, as Europe, as the UK have, and, and others have imposed on, on Russia currently. They haven't, um, uh, you know, stopped Putin immediately from, from, from invading or continuing its, uh, his, his war in, in Ukraine. Um, so that's, um, on one hand, that's always going to be a, a risk with economic measures. Economic measures take time to take effect uh, in almost all cases, uh, or to take at least politically, you know, they may, might hit economically very fast, but, but politically, um, uh, that's a different story. Um, there is a risk of, of so, so absolutely, there's also a risk of retaliation then, and, and, and even a tit-for-tat escalation. Um, that, that's all true. That's why it's so important that there are a lot of off-ramps and good dialogue. That's why this, this can't be the only tool. You know, you need good diplomacy, you need good um, strong partnerships with, with, uh, with friends and allies um, uh, to accompany this. And, um, and that's why it's a last resort tool for grave instances. Um, uh, uh, but sometimes, just like in the current situation, even though uh, there's little hope that our sanctions are, are going to immediately change Putin's calculus to a point where he just withdraws from Ukraine, you need to be able to act, um, and you need to um, uh, you, you need to be able to to use such measures. But again, this is why the tool has to be last resort and only for grave cases, and only when it, when everything else has failed. Okay. Another question on this front then, in such a case that uh, the tool is used um, and some kind of economic uh, pressure is imposed back on the, on the third country, is there a risk that European Union businesses you know, might get kind of caught in the middle here where perhaps tariffs are imposed on components that are important in their supply chain and so it raises their costs? In the U.S. case with the 301 tariffs, the tariff exclusion process was developed for the first time ever, so companies could apply for relief um, from paying tariffs on parts that they needed to source, in this case, from China. So do you foresee that this tool, the anti-coercion instrument, would need to include some kind of similar exclusion process? Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I think if, to, to respond to your first part, there as well, yes, I, I think clearly there is that risk and, and you know, any measures have to be devised very carefully, cautiously, which of course is uh, almost in contradiction to the swiftness we, we need under such a tool. Um, uh, so so there's, there is a risk of, you know, unintended consequences that things that uh, decision makers just haven't thought about, didn't think about when they, when they impose the measures. Um, so what's key is from, from the start is, is close, and that's foreseen uh, under this, is a very close dialogue with the private sector to understand uh, some of the consequences some measures might have. Um, 
And um, I wouldn't rule out the, you know, this a similar tariff exclusion process. For now, I think the thinking could more go into a direction, though this is me and my personal um, uh, analysis, if you will, um, uh, into having a sort of a, a compensation mechanism of sorts um, uh, where, because the, the, almost by definition, any countermeasure will hit a certain sector, a certain country of the European Union, a certain region, much more than others. Uh, you know, Portuguese uh, producers of X may not be hit, while Estonian uh, producers of Y will, will heavily be hit. Um, exporting countries will be could be hit much more, or you know, or, or you know, the big trading trading countries in Europe might be hit much more than others. So, um, having at least some kind of um, uh, balancing out of these effects would go a long way, even if it doesn't. It's it's impossible to compensate for some of the losses because in a dire situation, the losses might be huge, like the one we're in right now with Russia. But um, but um, uh, but but balancing out some of the effects already has a big, um, can bring a, a big political um, effect and ensuring up support for them uh, when they are really necessary. And, um, and otherwise they have to de be devised really well uh, and, and, and thought through in detail. Okay, let me ask you then how um, those factors might translate into consensus within the European Union when it comes to approving this tool. So. Really, what's next in the process of formalizing the anti-coercion instrument? My understanding is that some EU member states have expressed some concerns that the ACI is currently proposed could lead to more protectionism and trade wars. You mentioned Estonia. Um, that's one where, where I've seen some concerns expressed there. But others, like France, for example, support that um, tool. So how uh, easy or difficult will it be to establish enough consensus across the EU for the anti-coercion instrument to become reality? Yeah, I think um, I think the uh, the Ukraine war is is uh, certainly having an impact on on some on, on these discussions. Um, I, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, this was a or is obviously a, a very exceptional situation where Putin has you know talks about eradicating a, a country, a European country, off off the map uh, of the world, and um, and in such a situation, you find consensus. But I think there's a growing realization among many member states that that's not to be taken for granted and that many situations are gonna be more gray zone and less, less clear, less, less, less uh, flagrant, less, um, yeah, less flagrant, uh, flagrant um, violations of, of international law and so forth. And, uh, and you still need to be uh, capable of acting. So I think a lot of them are at least contemplating um, uh, uh, this, this, and, and considering this very actively, and that this might be very helpful. And some of them, I think, in, certainly in Eastern Europe, are also, uh, you know, I mean, the, the Russia's invasion in, in Ukraine is a, is a strong reminder of of um, uh, how geopolitical and how this is uh, how geopolitical the world has become, and how how. Um, how how difficult and and and, and much less rules based but much more power based international relations are becoming. Having said this, I mean, and we've seen this in in our conversation here. There are 
important um, things to consider on this on this instrument and, and important risks uh, involved and um, and and so 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 it'll be a discussion. I think my sense is that it could go quick quick more quickly than we think in, term, in European Union terms of lawmaking at least. Um, so that we um, uh, still this year, well this year, I mean maybe even by the summer, um, there could be a first position. Um, by the Council uh, of, of Member States, this is, that's where the Member States sit, and, and the European Parliament uh, uh, as well, and those are the two co-legislators co that now have to have, you know, to decide, basically. So I think by the end of the year, uh, maybe early 2023, this, this instrument could be in place, um, uh, but, uh, but of course, uh, subject to discussions between the Member States. Okay. So I want to come back then to something you just mentioned your view of the world, and you do a lot again of thinking and writing, you know, about this at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And so, you a moment ago described the world as less rules-based, more power-based. And I had seen in a recent uh, Twitter thread that you wrote, "quote Economic coercion is the new language of great power politics." Unquote. And we're now in a time where I think a lot of people are looking at globalization with some skepticism and revisiting the assumption that greater economic integration can lead to a more peaceful world. Because we see the integration of global supply chains and that perhaps there's a downside because it creates more options for countries to pressure each other, which is what we've been talking about here. But I want to ask you, are there other factors as well that led you to this conclusion right now that when you look at the world you see that economic coercion is the new language of great power politics so just walk us through what has led you to make that assessment um i think it's i mean it's empirically um uh, you know looking at how how these how recent conflicts between countries have played out almost always it involves a sort of a strong has a strong economic dimension one of pressure one of also positive incentives, I would include that. So I can maybe, maybe, you know, my, my statement would have been slightly more correct if I had said economic statecraft, um, uh, you know, care, economic carrots. Um, the way we um, uh, conduct our trade policies and try to foster new trade agreements where, where that still happens uh, is very much driven. And again, this has always been the case to a degree, but now much more so um, driven by by geopolitical calculations, um, counterbalancing diversification of, of supply chains and uh, you know, not overly being dependent on any one supplier, country, market, um, uh, and, and of course, you know, and purely geopolitics, who do you draw into your orbit, uh, economically speaking, and into your supply chains. Um, that's so that all of that is, is part of it. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and purely also the assessment that Due to the fact that where that nu nuclear weapons exist, um, and um, and and many societies, including the, the American uh, one, are are tired of war, um, that you know the next thing, and there aren't that many tools we have in foreign policy. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you have diplomacy? I mean, very broadly speaking, you have diplomacy, uh, which is the best option, uh, obviously, economic uh, statecraft and and uh, and military option and options, but if you need to respond to a country building a nuclear weapon, for instance, like Iran. Um, uh, if you need, there's urgency, a political, strong political dynamic to, you know, you need to show action, you need to demonstrate that you're acting, that you're punishing, or that you're incentivizing a certain behavior. You almost inevitably turn towards sanctions, even to a degree or, or to, towards economic means, at least 
almost, and I, I would even truly argue that way too often and, and that these tools get used um, too often stay in place and that yes, globalization is, is fragmenting. It's in a way it's, it's um, I mean, it's not funny, but, um, but uh, so that's not the right word, but it's, but it's really interesting and curious to see that we've been talking about decoupling from China for so long. And that's certainly happening in, in some sectors, high tech sectors. And now we're all of a sudden, we're in a situation where there's a rapid decoupling from Russia happening at the same time with all like, you know, G7 economies largely, and, and certainly for US and, and European economies. And you're getting more and more to a world where you're wondering, you know, is this going to be a much more fragmented world or more, maybe rather much more polarized world with different axes, different um, uh, ways of cooperating and using asymmetric dependencies, economic dependencies uh, to get to this or that uh, goal. So uh, all of this plays a role in any case in, in you know, my thinking and, and our thinking on, on economic statecraft and, and economic means being used for political goals. Okay. So a few more questions here to round out our discussion on this. Mm -hmm. One has to do with the World Trade Organization and how it might view the anti-coercion instrument should it become reality. This is an organization of rules. Um, and as you've just discussed, kind of the fragmenting of globalization. And I wonder how far rules can go in a world uh, that still consists of sovereign states. And, and the WTO, as I said, is an organization of rules, as you know. So the WTO, as you've pointed out, is, is designed to determine whether a particular trade measure violates a certain trade rule, not whether a country is using a particular measure to exert economic pressure to try to get a government to alter its choices in another policy area. So again, it gets to kind of the why behind the usage of a particular, in this case, trade tool. So it's not really set up to, to deal with necessarily economic coercion, but how do you think the WTO would, would view um, the ACI? Would it be consistent with WTO rules or how does that fit in the WTO context? Right, yeah, good. I mean, definitely also a good question. And, and, and this goes back to what I've, I, I, in my view, goes, goes back to what I've, what I've been saying that you know, what we're seeing is that ever, well, at least an increasing share of world trade is, is, um, is simply not rules-based anymore, but, but or at least primarily not rules-based, but power-based. And I would argue that you know a good part of, of uh, trade relations between the US and China, that for, for, for that part, it, that's true. Um, uh, uh, now we're, we're adding Russia um, uh, to that for sure. Um, uh, and, and so the question is, um, uh, and, and as you, you were saying, the WTO was, um, uh, was, was built in a, at a time when this was, or, or conceived for, for a different purpose, basically, um, and, and to avoid precisely that. Um, so I think when it comes to the anti-coercion instrument, at least the philosophy, the EU's philosophy on this, and, and also how we thought about it, was that um, there is WTO law, um, and, and the EU will continue to respect that 100%, or you know, if, if not, we'll, we'll, we'll submit to the processes in place uh, to, to correct it and so forth. But, um, uh, uh, but, but, um, there's, but WTO law doesn't exist in a limbo and doesn't, isn't everything there is in international law. There is also a broader public international law um, which prohibits the interference with the sovereign choices of, 
of countries and states and uh, and and you know the exer the exercise of pressure to change uh, change policy so that's the philosophy that where there is such a flagrant violation of international law the eu still has a right to uh, counteract that not under wto law but under broader international law which which is the the lex generalis of, of uh, um, uh, you know the, and the broader international law context uh, in which also WTO law um, uh, is embedded. And um, I, I don't know exactly what the WTO would say of this instrument, but, um, but I think uh, if there were cases on economic coercion brought to the WTO and you know, if there were panel decisions, um, uh, uh, at least panel decisions on that, I think, I think that would be something that, that would be very good. And, and, um, and I don't think the EU would, you know, I think the EU is not, not the, the actor most suspected of, of wanting to erode the WTO. I think this, uh, it's, it's, this is mostly or purely actually a reaction to others not playing by the rules anymore, especially China um, uh, and Russia. That is a perfect segue into my next question for you, which is based on a very, very interesting um, comment that you and your co-author Pavel Zerka made in your report that you published last June, June 2021, called Measured Response, How to Design a European Instrument Against Economic Coercion. And we'll put that in our show notes here for our listeners. But I want to quote from that paper. You wrote, quote, that Europeans are facing a dilemma. Should they aim to become as skilled in the art of weaponized interdependence as other great powers? Or should they stick to their commitments to free trade and the rules-based order trying to establish an international framework instead, unquote. And you went on to suggest that it might be possible for the EU to do both things. So I'd just like to ask you to expand on that and, and reflect on maybe how that could work in practice. Right, and it's a difficult, yeah, balance to strike or a very fine line to walk. Um, but, 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 the, but the idea really is that you... Um, you know, avoiding to be overly protectionist, over, you, you, you need to avoid things like, you know, on, that the ACI could be used for special interest, for instance, very important. Um, uh, 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 but, but that you say that whenever possible and wherever still existent, you know, obviously um, uh, uh, the EU will follow everything there is under the WTO system. This will be 100% trade under um, uh, under the rules that we've we've all you know jointly, especially with the US, uh, US the US and Europe have put in place uh, uh, with the establishment of the WTO and and so forth. Um, where there is a grave deviance um, <laughs> or, or or a great a grave um, violation of other rules um, of international law, of fundamental international law. I mean, and, and precisely this, this uh, of, of the you know the rule of, of non-interference in the sovereign choices of, of countries um, through an economic means. The EU simply has to have a, uh, something in the back of its hand, and still with lots of off ramps, as I described, and still with the the, the hope that um, most of these situations would still get resolved by di through dialogue. But in the back of their hands, um, Europeans, I think, increasingly feel like they need something just in case. And and for that, in those cases, then you know they they need to be able to um, to use uh, uh, countermeasures and to also um, 
but only in response and only reciprocally and and in proportionate manner and you know with a proportional response um be able to also use the link the economic links that, that bind them with the third country that's coercing them and and punish and be able to punish it for it okay jonathan thank you last question thanks a lot Same, yeah this is the last question i i asked every guest on this podcast um and that is what are you reading what is something in particular you've read lately about trade or global commerce that's been especially interesting to you I'm really looking forward to the um, to reading. Uh, you know, as soon as we can actually know what you know what this is, what this is, what the the war in Ukraine is doing to the international trade order and 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 how it might change change it. But I think it might be still very early on. So, um, but a book that just got published and that I've read enough of <laughs> to know that it's absolutely uh, recommendable and 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 really good is Nicholas Mulder, uh, the Economic Weapon. Rise of, the rise of sanctions as a tool of modern war um, literally got published about a week ago and um, and uh, is mostly sold out. But I got an, I got myself an ebook and it's and it's just fascinating. It's the history of of you know when did sanctions work and mostly when they didn't work and which sanctions, trade sanctions, financial sanctions, and so forth. It's it's a really great book. That sounds incredibly timely. Wow! Absolutely, very, yeah. <laughs> very good timing for that to come out. Okay. Jonathan Hackenberg, again, thank you so much for visiting with us on Trade Matters today and walking us through what this tool looks like, how it's being shaped, and a European perspective on, on the world. We appreciate it very much. Thanks so much for having me and, and for the invitation. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening, and a big thank you to Rebel Seklocha and JC Toman for helping produce this podcast. Stay in touch by following us on Twitter at YiderUNL and leave us a review on your podcast app. It helps us get noticed and improve the show. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Geider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.